Podcast, bringing you insightful analysis on business and government news from a local to a global perspective. And now, here are your hosts of the 10th, Dan McCracken and Rocky Lawson. Welcome to the 10th Podcast. This is Dan McCracken. As always, I would like to start by saying thank you for taking the time to listen. Today, I spoke with James D'Angelo, winner of the 2014 MIT Climate Collab. He is an ex-NASA scientist and now a Harvard Research Associate. His current work is being done at the Congressional Research Institute around a ghost bill introduced by the Nixon administration, which he believes created a crucial flaw in our democracy. The bill is called the Legislative Reorganization Act of 1970, passed on October 26th of 1970. The Legislative Reorganization Act changed the internal procedures to provide complete transparency to our legislators' voting record, which on its face seems like a law passed to benefit the people. However, in the subsequent years, There was an insurgency of lobby firms, special interest, and exponential influx of private capital entering into the political marketplace. Transparency seems to have put a value on the voting record, and now the ROI on investment by corporations, specific interests, and those with means is now directly accountable. We can all agree that transparency in government seems like a construct for virtuous outcomes, but what if the fabric of transparency is the moral equivalence to a wolf in sheep's clothing? The common argument today in regards to money and politics is whether or not it should be there, whether we should set limits on it, and what kind of influence it should have on our political system. The Supreme Court of the United States believes it is protected under this country's founding set of principles, which makes any argument against it rather difficult. Here nor there, please enjoy. My old uh, colleague, in the United States Senate, your distinguished Senator, Senator Moss, President McKay, Brown, Secretary Udall, Governor, Mr. Rawlings, ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate your welcome. And I'm very proud to be back in this historic building and have an opportunity to say a few words on some matters which concern me as president and I hope uh, concern you as citizens. The fact is that I take uh, strength and hope in recalling how this state was built and what it started with and what it has now, the qualities which we like to feel this country has, courage, patience, faith, self-reliance, perseverance, and above all, an unflagging determination to see the right prevail. James D'Angelo, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Daniel? I'm great. I really appreciate you finding time to come on the show. Awesome. Yeah, glad to be here. I'd like to start with the fact that you were the winner of the 2014 MIT Climate Collab. Well, I actually do. I'm a technologist background, so I uh, 
graduated with my master's from Boston University Electrical Engineering, and then I worked for NASA for a few years. And uh, so I've always just kind of had my hands in technology. I've really liked sort of where software meets hardware. So I did a lot of software analysis of our our system. We actually launched a craft when I was working with NASA uh, that's now still in space delivering data. I kind of got hooked on uh, this cryptocurrency revolution uh, where, you know, you have Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all these other monetary systems, you know, sort of libertarian monetary systems. But they're really fascinating technology. And I was looking at that to develop a uh, cap and trade that wouldn't need government authorization. And so it, it, it turns out to be a fairly trivial thing to develop. So I basically built the philosophy of it and wrote how someone might code it. And it actually got, it, it got attention from MIT, so I, I've been invited back there a number of times actually to speak about it. And uh, there were even some people talking about developing it, but uh, it never got farther than that. So we won the award, and uh, I was very satisfied with that. And I still think it's a viable solution, though the things we're talking about today are why I didn't pursue it any further, because I think that solving some of the things we talk about today are a much better solution. Uh, so it was very funny because while I was getting the award, I literally was coming up with the final information on this transparency stuff to suggest that I was probably right about what I was doing. So I was finding data and, and looking at the actual legislation. And so I'm there receiving the award and I'm kind of going, well, I might be onto something better, uh, but thanks for the award. Now you're a Harvard research associate working on what a ghost bill introduced by the Nixon administration. Correct. So signed by Richard Nixon, October 26, 1970, called the ghost bill by Donald Rumsfeld, ironically, who lamented that uh, the public just never seemed to care about the institutional design of legislature. So how a legislature votes on bills or how a legislature goes about producing bills is often fought about heavily between lobbyists and members of Congress, but the public just couldn't care less at all. So this got almost no press whatsoever. And so he he dubbed it the ghost bill. And that's the Legislative Reorganization Act of 1970? Correct. Legislative reorganization. So legislative is Congress and reorganize is we're going to change. So this is a fundamental, only two bills have been called Legislative Reorganization Act. There was a 46, 1946, and a 1970. And these were major overhauls of how our Congress works. And certainly if you look at the problems of today, a lot of the griping that people have is how Congress works. So these are these are stepping stones uh, that need to be looked at. And certainly if things were working better beforehand and then changed after, you, you have to consider the Legislative Reorganization Act of that time to be something you might want to look at first. But again, because of what Rumsfeld said, maybe people weren't thinking about it at all. I should lay the context. I originally discovered your work on YouTube after venturing down a rabbit hole about the existence of capital in the political marketplace. And I, I was torn between the aspect of government interference with parameters set on funding for political campaigns or specific interests. And I took somewhat of a metaphysical approach to the idea of where all this started, and I discovered the cardboard box reform. Maybe you can elaborate a bit into what that is. The cardboard box reform is actually what I posted online. I actually posted it on my Bitcoin how-to website channel thing that I was developing the Climate Collab stuff on, fully expecting the, the cryptocurrency community to just slice my neck for coming in with a fully political talk. 
And instead, it's actually my most viewed video. And it's right about 100,000 views today and with just amazing comments on it. I propose this idea of the cardboard box reform because the cardboard box is just a $5 box that's basically what you would buy if you were going to set up a cheap voting system in any town. So, you know, a lot of people vote in gyms. And so we vote, the individuals vote by secret ballot. And we vote secretly because in 1890, when we finally switched to a secret ballot system, every election was surrounded by a lot of problems with people getting killed, beat up, and a lot of votes were being bought. Um, So Tammany Hall was very famous for offering up to $25 per vote. So as the vote got closer and they saw that their candidate was getting closer, they would literally offer homeless people between $2 and $25 in 1890. That's not real dollars. Those are $1890. So a lot of money for individual votes. And certainly it was cheaper than that the days you know, when they didn't think the election was close. So you might get a chicken wing or a breadstick or something like that. But Because the vote was public, so you could walk in and people would vote into a glass bowl with a colored ballot. So if I was voting for, say, Abraham Lincoln, I might have a blue ballot, for example, and I would be dropping it into a glass bowl in a public square. Surrounding that glass bowl were usually some of the more powerful people in town. So you usually would see your boss, certainly would see the sheriff. And it was a very intimidating process voting in front of these people because if you were going to vote against the sheriff, for example, you had to vote in front of them while he's watching. And certainly if you voted against him and he won, you might expect that uh, maybe if you called him for help later on that year, that he might not be as ready to come and help you. So the whole idea of the secret ballot was to remove intimidation, threats, and the ability to buy votes. And it turns out that most of what Congress was doing at that time was secret. And so they were voting secretly. And they continued voting secretly up until 1970, when this Legislative Reorganization Act opened up all voting in committees. So if you've watched the Lincoln movie, a lot of votes in Congress are public every year. So the Lincoln movie takes place in 1860, and it's about a public vote. And that has to do with the emancipation of slavery That's a floor vote, and it's public. There's about 200 public votes a year. Up until 1970, there were also thousands of secret votes each year, whereby no lobbyist, no citizen, no president, no other congressman, you know, the senator couldn't walk in to see how Congress is voting, could figure out how you voted. And this was installed, actually, from Stuart England. So in 1866, Stuart's England decided that their committee should vote secretly, not to protect themselves from uh, oil barons, for example, but to protect themselves from the king. The king actually was hanging people who were voting against his appropriations. Parliament was, or the House of Commons, I I forget exactly what they were called at that time, were the executors. Uh, No, the king was the executor, but the, the committees were the appropriators. And the king would propose stuff, tell what he wanted, And then certain members would vote against the king, and the king would bring down all the wrath that he could. Not dissimilar to what is happening today with the health care bills, which are public voting. So we've got Senator John McCain announcing how he's going to vote, and he's going to vote that way because he doesn't want to look like a flip-flopper or Sarah Collins in Maine announcing how they're going to vote. And then the president trying to push as hard as he can with all the powers that the president has, and the president has a lot of power. So these are very real threats that the president takes out and certainly has been able to push people on certain votes and certain things because the votes are public. And so again, the same issue with Congress is that if the votes are public, well, you can scare people. You can go and scare 
Center John, Senator John McCain. The other members of his party are certainly trying to count coup on him. Oh, you're not a real Republican. Oh, you're this and that. And they're going to work hard to try and get him out in the next election. Same with Sarah Collins. But the opposite happens as well, which is just as in 1890, where you would pay for a vote or give someone a chicken wing for a vote. As soon as the votes became public in 1970, campaign finance source. No one was paying campaign finance funds in 1969. I mean, it was just, you'd be idiotic, right? I'm going to give you $10,000 for a campaign and 95% of your votes are secret. So you can vote against me the entire time. You could stymie every piece of legislation that I propose in secret and still accept the money. Well, sure. We know exactly what happens. No one's going to be giving them money and no one was. Right. So campaign finance is just ridiculously low. It's basically cousins and nephews that are donating to the campaign. As soon as the votes open, campaign finance takes off. So 1974 is the year everyone talks about being the first year of explosive campaign finance for members of Congress. And it makes a lot of sense. All of a sudden you can see how they can vote and you can influence how they vote. And uh, so people are willing to pay. And every year that campaign finance has gone up. Well, have you had the chance to speak to current congressmen or former congressmen about the legislation? I have. I've had endless conversations. So my co-author is David King at Harvard University, and he hosts the new members of Congress sessions, which actually took place last fall. And I forget how many, but all first-time members of Congress are invited, and I think they got 70% of them to actually arrive in Boston for a few nights, dinners and talks and everything. And I was actually invited to participate. So I sat at tables with all these guys. And there's a lot of ex-congressmen there as well. So I speak to them quite frequently about it. What's really fascinating is even the oldest ones that I've spoken to. So I've spoken a number of times with Barney Frank. Barney Frank's retired. But Barney Frank, I forget when he started, but he, you know, he's, he was in for many, many years. I actually ran into him uh, right after I kind of put all this data together in a theater. And I saw him just kind of walking by himself. So I was just like, hey, can I ask you a few questions? He was so friendly. We sat there for 15 minutes and spoke. And I told him, you know, what do you think about that? Well, I asked him, what do you think about the Legislative Reorganization Act of 1970? He hadn't heard of it. What do you think about the idea that congressmen used to vote secretly and they suddenly uh, were forced to vote openly? He's like, he didn't even know the change had happened. I'm pulling him out. It might seem like an uh, unfair punch, but that's what I find when I talk to every member of Congress. And that's what I find almost without exception when I talk to professors of Congress, that they're not aware of this change. Right. So it's really fascinating how under the radar this ghost bill is. And then so you pressure him a little further and you're like, so what would you think if the votes were secret? And he said, well, I couldn't intimidate all of them. And it's exactly I've seen him since do a video on that. So he's in a Washington Post interview where he's talking about the value of intimidating votes. That's the driver of partisanship because he's not going to intimidate anybody on the other side of the aisle. But because he had a lot of power in the party itself, he's going to intimidate the rank and file members. And we see that. So in 1970, partisanship's at an all-time low in the United States. So is income inequality. So is lobbying, right? These are just, they're low. So is incarceration and, and a number of other things. And then partisanship just starts taking off like a rocket ship. And I just found a great quote, actually, by Norman Ornstein, who's uh, from AEI, so he's kind of on the right, talking about how as soon as the votes are open, so he's writing in 1973, even though he's now very active, he's got a great following on Twitter. He writes in 1973 that 
the leaders, as soon as the votes are made public, are threatening the members and getting them to change their votes. Partisanship's a huge problem right now. I mean, you know, if you could just solve partisanship, you know, people would be very excited. But we're, we're talking about all these things are actually caused by the same thing. So we're talking about income inequality or incarceration rates or lack of response to climate change or too much government spending. Because keep in mind, if big paper is able to pressure the government to spend a lot more on paper. So Republicans ideas, which are very important, which is the size and control of government, uh, come into play here, as well as a lot of very democratic or left principles. So this, is, this has got uh, a little bit of food for everybody who likes to eat at the political table. That food is in the form of transparency. Transparency now has a value to the voting record of our democracy. And it's, it's difficult to argue against transparency, correct? Well, I found it's absolutely impossible. Like, you, you aren't even able to present data. Obviously, with so much power behind the idea of it, my question would be, how do the lobby firms feel about it? We can say, after three years of looking, there is no evidence to show that transparency helps. You would think that lobbyists and special interests would just hate all transparency provisions. There would be on record somewhere for trying to finagle them way, some way out of them. It's just the opposite. So everywhere we look, lobbyists support transparency. Corporate interests support transparency. Isn't it ironic that you have special interests basically fighting everything under the sun, and we can't find a special interest or lobbyist who fights transparency? The opposite is what we're seeing in Europe. So Europe is actually in a situation, so you have the European Union, and they have committees, and the committees are under pressure now to open, to become as open as the American committees are. And right now, the European Union is straight. You find writing where people are like, we don't understand why there's not a lobby, lot of lobbyists around these committees. Well, they're closed. Uh, this guy, Harry Cooper, just recently wrote an article. I think it might have been the end of 2016, but he's followed up with other stuff where he's writing, we're seeing the strangest bedfellows when it comes to transparency. We're seeing the corporate interests align with the rabid transparency advocates to push for more transparency. That's exactly what we expect, right? The corporate interests want transparency, and then the rabid hippies who believe that transparency is just good, they just believe it, are pushing for this thing based off of an assumption. And the assumption doesn't hold up to anything. So we, we've now generated math. So we can show mathematically that it's benefiting special interests. So that's a paper that we're, we've got in draft form right now, but I just got fantastic response from a, a couple important scholars on it, just fa fantastic response. But we can show mathematically that transparency can only benefit special interests. And accountability, by the way, doesn't, it doesn't work at all the way that people think. And so all these transparency and accountability things are, are mythical. But you're absolutely right. The, the climate is, is such that if you want to reform Congress and you want to start a group and you want to raise money, you put transparency in the first line, right? That's how you're going to raise money. If you put secrecy, I mean, it's not even going to get passed through. I just got rejected by a major journal for sending in a paper that is fortunately getting great reception from other scholars. But the guy basically laughed me out of the journal. I got rejected in the first round. And he claimed that my my conclusions must be spurious, based on nothing. So I'll keep resending, but this is the climate that we're in. 
I deal with scholar after scholar after scholar, present them data after data after data, and they go, but just transparency's got to be better. So it's where we're at. And there is a lot of data to suggest that transparency is bad. There's actually quite a bit. Um, There's this really great World Bank report from 1998, which is just one of my favorite things. I think it sums up the entire world's view on transparency, which is, I'm going to paraphrase them, but they're, they're basically saying, we're looking at uh, Eastern Europe and the, the ex-Soviet Union countries, right? And ever since we've introduced massive transparency procedures, there's just been a massive increase in corruption. And then two lines later, nevertheless, we recommend continuing full steam ahead with the transparency measures. <laughs> that's a World Bank report that'll, that's cited on our site. You can find that. We actually have the other fascinating thing is we've been collecting just the people like scholars, politicians, etc., who've literally been fearful, but somewhere deep in their book, page 192 in their book, they've said, well, maybe transparency is the cause of all of this. And those citations now are over, we have over 100 of those. And that's, those are famous scholars, famous politicians. So if you go on our site, congressionalresearch.org, you'll see under the citations, just hundreds of of citations where people are saying just straight up. So even in as early as like mid 70s, certainly some big scholars like uh, Douglas Arnold is saying, we might have gotten this all wrong. Transparency might be benefiting special interests. The idea isn't to change the way that floor votes. Your proposition is to close the committee meeting. Correct. So the committee meetings are all the things that lead up to the floor vote, right? So if you want to get something to the floor, there's no way to get it to the floor without it going through committee after committee after committee. As long as it goes through two or three committees, you're going to clean it out from massive special interest influence. So it's going to hit the floor without all the provisions that the special interests want. So when we're talking about health care, I don't care if you're talking about the health care bill that the Republicans are proposing today or what was proposed by Obama uh, you know, years ago. The special interests were there watching every vote and every discussion. You close those doors for a second, those health care bills are entirely different. So, yeah, when you get to the floor, it's all celebratory, right? Every congressman kind of knows where the floor votes are going to go, right? There's rare moments in history where they don't know where the floor vote's going to go. But they're celebratory things. As Wilson famously said, Congress lives in the committees and it goes to the floor for the final show, the sort of like. And, and what's great is it, it aligns very well with citizens' attention, right? It's hard to run into a single citizen who's followed more than 10 votes a year. I mean, that's literally, if you've got someone who's pro-transparency, go, how many votes did you follow this past year? They say anything more than 10, fall over because either they're lying or they're the one point, they're 0.01%. Congress votes 200 times on the floor and then thousands of times in committee. I've never met a single person that's followed more than 30 or 40 votes a year. Well, very thought-provoking. I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. And where can our listeners find some of your work? Yeah, so now we're, we're posting everything on our, our site. So it's just www.congressionalresearch.org. And we've now got our, even our draft papers go up. So if people want to read them and comment on them, they might affect a change when we've got a comma in the wrong spot or something worse. Uh, please let us know. That site's being updated pretty aggressively right now uh, as we're getting ready for hopefully doing a conference on these topics at Harvard in the spring. Uh, and a number of big scholars have already signed on board. So it'll be the first sort of public presentation of these ideas, and there'll be sort of a media event around it. 
Well, hey, thanks again, and uh, good luck with all your research. Daniel, thanks a million. This was really enjoyable. Thanks for your work as well. Uh, it's a great contribution. I've enjoyed the other podcasts you've done on this. Once again, thank you for taking the time to listen. You can find more information about our show at the 10 thdistrictcom